Wow, wow, wow. Um, thank you all so much for being here. Um, thank you, Lisa, Cliff, all you guys in the band. Um, I was not expecting <clears throat> any of that, so I'm wrecked uh, in a good way. See, man, I just need to not look out. Okay. Um, for those of you who, who made the effort to, to be here, traveled specifically to be here for my last Sunday preaching, um, that just means so, so much to me. I'm humbled. I'm honored. Um, as this Sunday approached, I obviously anticipated like a range of emotions, and that is happening right now. Um, you name it, and I'm probably feeling it. But I would say mostly what I'm feeling is just deep, deep gratitude. Really trying my best to hold on to this moment and uh, everything that it represents. Serving as your pastor, uh, or one of your pastors, for all of these years um, has been such a joy. It's been such an honor, and I, I definitely don't take that for granted. And what a journey it has been. I've been reflecting lately on how all this started 20 years ago in 2003 with a young adult Bible study we started at, at Union Chapel with like 8 to 10 people back when I was a young adult. And out of that group, we started a Saturday night service for 20-somethings, originally called, it was actually called UC at 7. And I found this week this little, this little invite card that I made to help get the word out. And I spent like a week on it because I, didn't, I had to learn a little bit about Illustrator and the professional printing lingo, like Pantone colors and all that. Anyway, so that's how it started. A few years later, um, we became Commonway, and we moved from the small auditorium in the 180 building to the gym. I found this picture and went from Saturday nights to Sunday mornings. And Back then, we originally sat in the round, as you can see, and that had pros and cons. That was fun while it lasted. But how many of you, by show of hands, actually remember being there and sitting in that circle? Yeah, so several of you still around. Then in the summer of 2011, God led us to take a huge step of faith and launch out as an independent church plant, <clears throat> and we met around the corner at the Horizon Convention Center. And obviously, so much went into that. So many of you stepped up to, to serve and to help start our children's ministry and our youth ministry and do back-breaking Sunday morning setup at the you-know-what crack of dawn. <laughs> and we did that for seven years. And then five years ago, God provided us a more permanent facility uh, here in downtown Muncie in what was originally a J.C. Penney's. So from one JC to like <laughs> the JC, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So many of you uh, gave generously uh, and helped us renovate the space upstairs and down. An army of you helped assemble furniture and move all our stuff from the storage at Convention Center and get us ready for our first Sunday here which I conveniently missed all of that, whoops, because we were away during that whole transition. We were on sabbatical. So. And, of course, it's never been about a building for us. It would be impossible to try and share all the stories and highlights of what God has done among us and through us over the years. 
all the baptisms and baby dedications, stories of life change, ministry started, missionary supported, staff hired. I think of all of our, the small groups, special services, ways we've given money and time to the community and supported great organizations serving the most vulnerable. Think about all that's happened over the years in Nicaragua and our partnership uh, with FH. Our mission from the beginning has been to invite people to find hope in Jesus. And in big ways and small, so many of you have played your part in helping us do that. Your commitment to show up, to be generous, to serve, uh, to get involved, invested in community here, to lead, to pray, to invite your friends. I mean, for better or worse, we have spent less than $100 in our history on marketing. I don't know if that's a good idea or not, but looking back, I cannot explain how all of this happened. But obviously and ultimately, this is about what God has done here. Life change is sometimes difficult to measure. But from my perspective, God has done something significant among us. And he's done it in large part because of your willingness to say yes. Again, to show up, to serve, to give, to invite others. And so thank you. I trust that you will continue to do all of that, especially in this season of change as we wait for what God has for us next. So I just want to hear, I want you to hear me say, we need you now as much as we ever have. Um, this church family and our mission have always been way bigger than me. Um, yes, I've done my best to play my part very imperfectly, um, but I'm just so proud. I'm so proud to have walked with you and with Commonway all these years to this point together and uh, what, what we've accomplished together with God's help. I do have a profound sense that, you know, my own personal circumstances, challenges aside, that I have done kind of big picture what God has asked me to do in this role. I really believe that Commonway is in a season, developmentally, where it is time for someone else to lead us, to build on this foundation and help Commonway move to the next place with all the emotions that that brings. I, have, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, of course, but God does. And so I'm actually genuinely hopeful, even excited about what's next for Commonway. I can't wait to see what God does in this next chapter. And so again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you all. Well, this is just a small sample of some of the work we've done together on Sunday mornings. So like a glimpse of some of our teaching series that we've worked through over the years. You know, the last few weeks, of course, I've been thinking about these final messages that I want to leave you all with. The last few sermons were actually pretty hard for me to narrow it down and to decide, but this week was different. In fact, the moment I knew November 19th would be my last sermon, I knew immediately what I was supposed to share. Because if I had one sermon to preach, if I had one thing I wanted everyone at Commonway to know and to understand and to embody moving forward, it would be this. Dramatic pause, right? <laughs> From the beginning of human history, it seems that we have wanted to connect somehow with God. 
If you do a brief survey of just cultures, peoples across the millennia, and this is true in pretty much every place on earth, it's obvious. We are hardwired to like reach out for the divine. We desperately want to believe that we're not like alone here, that our lives have meaning, that life is more than just you're born, you live, you die, end of story. From the beginning, we've wanted to connect with God. And it was essentially out of this fundamental desire, this impulse, that religion was born. Religion, of course, is the word for the system, the structure, the framework for how we understand God, how we make sense of things like human destiny and life after death and suffering and uh, how to keep the gods or God on your side. What does God want from us? Why are we here? And so most religions over time develop the system of offerings and sacrifices, rituals, symbols, prayers, all done the, the right way and the right timing with the right posture. Usually there are holy sites involved, sometimes pilgrimages. Often there are like holy people uh, associated, people apparently more connected to the divine who can kind of mediate between common people and, and God. What happens though is religion over time becomes this series of boxes that we check to know that we're good with God. So that you could, I guess, say, okay, I've done the thing. I've made the offering. I showed up. See, I'm with the big guy. I can lay my head on my pillow at night and have peace that God accepts me, that we're not going to be punished or cursed by the divine. And so religion often uses rules to force our steps. So here's the goal. Here's what this is supposed to look like. It then uses guilt to keep us in line. Don't you screw it up. And then there's rituals to remind us of our failure to live up to the rules. Uh, you know, I messed up, so give me something to do to fix it. How exhausting. How unbelievably, utterly tiring. How can I ever truly know that I've done enough? I try to be a good person and live a good life, but like I've also done some things, in the words of Anne Lamott, that make Jesus want to drink gin out of the cat dish. Wow. How do I know? It's a good picture. That I've done enough to tip the scales in my favor. And then, of course, there's the issue of who gets to say what the system is, what the rules are. So lots of people grow up in church and then at some point, you know, go off or they go to college and they have this thought, wait a minute, all this religion, this is just like rules and traditions that people made up a long time ago. Funny enough, often for their own advantage. And so because of that, I'm out. Sorry, mom, I'm done with God. Others in our culture have rejected church or religion or organized belief because they experienced it and found it lacking. Their experience with religion was, it was incredibly burdensome. It was like anything but freeing and life-giving. It was exhausting. It was irrelevant or boring. Others walk away because they're tired of feeling condemned. They're just tired of the guilt. In many ways, Jesus shows up and says again and again, 
This is not who God is or what he's looking for. In doing this, religion essentially adds more weight on people who are already burdened by life and hardship. It pushes people away. It loads them with guilt and condemnation. And so in a very real way, Jesus' intention throughout the Gospels was to actually rescue people from religion, to take us from these systems that had been so clearly articulated and beaten to death, and to rescue us into a whole new way of life. Jesus goes to the heart of all of this and says, that is not from God. Also, woe to anyone who piles more of this onto people. In John chapter 2, one of my favorite stories, Jesus performs his first miracle. Do you remember what it was? Turning water to wine at a wedding. At the end of the story, John says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So notice John says that this miracle is a sign. It points to who Jesus is and and what he's about. That's what a sign does. points to something. So Jesus' entry into the miracle business is turning water into wine. That's kind of a strange miracle, isn't it? And what's he doing? Is he just trying to save the host of the the banquet embarrassment? Or is he trying to show us something else? And by the way, Jesus, if you read the details, doesn't just make a little bit of wine. We're talking like around 130 gallons. I've been to some big receptions. I don't think anything like that. Um, And to top it off, he makes noticeably good wine. The the host, the master of the party, after tasting this wine, says to the groom, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had a little too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Like, hold up. This is not your typical, like, house red. This is like vintage Chateau Cheval. I mean, this is wild. So here's an important question. What does the miracle or sign point to? What's the significance of all the miracles he could have done? Why is this his first? And most people are like, I don't know. It's a cool party trick for sure. Uh, Or he saved the day, but we're not sure. What if Jesus is being very intentional with this? John certainly thinks so. What if he is purposely setting up at the beginning in this moment everything he's going to be about. Now, there's something we miss here if we're, because we're not familiar with this culture. Jesus does something in this story everyone back then would have picked up on. In fact, John, who's writing this, doesn't even bother explaining it because he can't imagine there'd be people 2,000 years later with enormous cultural distance that wouldn't automatically know the huge significance of this detail. But look at it. Right in the middle of the story, John is careful to mention in verse 6, nearby, stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. None of you seem all that offended by that. Perhaps you should be. Jesus does not have the wine served out of ordinary wine jars. He tells the servants to fill the stone jars, which are used for what? Ceremonial, not just washing, ceremonial washing. 
That's a detail that we tend to pass over and, and without pausing to ask, why is this mentioned? So one of the traditions of some of the religious groups at that time, particularly the Pharisees, one of their deals was regular ritual hand washing before they ate. This ritual washing, it was called performing ablutions. There's your word for the day. They would dip their hands in this water, in a sacred water, in a certain way, as a way of symbolizing their desire to remain pure from the sin of the world. And so these stone jars here are the sacred containers set aside specifically for an important religious ritual. Jesus takes those basins that religious people used as a way of saying, we're in and you guys are out. We're good with God because we're pure. Good luck, the rest of you. Jesus fills those same vessels with wine for a party. On a separate occasion near this time, Mark tells us, and this helps us understand a little better what's going on here at this wedding. He says, the Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And the problem here is not that the ha their hands are um, physically dirty. This is not a sanitary issue. Ooh, don't double dip. That's gross. Uh, no, it's a religious issue. They were ritually impure. They had not done the thing required by their tradition. So the Pharisees and teachers asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. This issue of ceremonial washing is one that Jesus takes on multiple times in the Gospels. He says, what you guys are doing here does not describe the life that's offered in my kingdom. He gives another example of this kind of stuff they make up. And then he says, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. You're just making this up. It, it's ridiculous. And I, for one, am tired of it. It's not, it's not what God is remotely interested in. So look again at what Jesus does at this wedding. He doesn't just condemn the religious people with his words. He goes, no, that's not quite strong enough. I'm not sure people will really get it. Oh, here's something that might help people understand. And in the middle of a wedding celebration, a party, Jesus takes what's used for the ceremonial washing. He takes these holy containers that serve one specific, completely invented religious purpose. And he says, you know what we're going to put in those? Wine for the party. We're going to take what's been used to separate people and throw a huge party. That's what God thinks about your elitist rules and your guilt and your rituals. And of course, you might ask, well, what else was he supposed to use? But it's not like he didn't have other options. If you think about it, if they had just run out of wine at this party, well, that means there's plenty of empties lying around that could then hold the new miracle wine, jugs, jars, bottles, wineskins. I mean, that's their dilemma. They're out of wine. Meaning Jesus could have just as, as easily filled the empty containers. 
that would have actually been the obvious choice. Instead, he points to these sacred ritual washing containers and says, perfect, that'll work. That's his first miracle. That's how he comes on the scene, by desecrating on purpose a religious ritual for the sake of a celebration. He takes these jars that represent personal purification, which is like, here's what you got to do to get on God's good side. Here is a reminder of your failure to meet the standard. Here's a symbol of religious guilt, and he transforms it into a symbol of relational celebration. From holy water to wedding wine, from legalism to life, from religion to relationship, this is his entry on the scene. Boy, that had to make some people blood red mad. Now, it'd be one thing if Jesus just messed with their man-made traditions. But if you step back and look at his ministry, and it's hard to overstate this, it appears that Jesus very clearly sets out from the beginning to systematically undermine, confront the entire religious system of his day. Tradition is just one religious hallmark that he messes with, but he doesn't stop there. He also challenges their understanding of the Torah, the Old Testament laws. He says, all those dietary laws and food restrictions, you're missing the point. God doesn't care about what goes into your stomach. He cares about what's flowing out of your heart. Jesus violates the Sabbath repeatedly. It's like you guys have so many rules about this one day. You think if you keep them all, you're going to somehow make God happy. Not what God is interested in. He totally ignores all their tribal purity laws. He engages with outsiders like Samaritans. Once, he commends a Roman centurion, public enemy number one. Jesus commends the guy for his great faith. Jesus touches lepers and the dead and is touched by a bleeding, unclean woman. But instead of them defiling him, he makes them clean. He gains a reputation as a friend of sinners, spending time with tax collectors and other people well outside the bounds of the pure and the righteous. I mean, how many stories do we need like this? This tension that Jesus creates with religious people along the way is, is like palpable. In a number of places, he takes on the temple system itself in Jerusalem, which would be their most sacred holy place. He says, first of all, what's going on here and the injustice being done in God's name is total nonsense. Also, you should know that God is not limited to a particular place. God is actually not confined to some holy building or temple. It's like Jesus sat down and made a list of all the boxes every good Jewish person was supposed to check. Hmm, what are all the main things that religious leaders pride themselves on? And then he either deliberately, deliberately ignores them or more often goes ahead and does the exact opposite. And people sometimes say, you know, all Jesus did was go around loving people and caring for the poor and healing the sick, and then they killed him for it. And it's true, he did do those things, but that's not what got him killed. No, it's because he also went around and systematically blew up the very foundations of what all human religions, not least first century Judaism, were assumed to be built on. So there's also that. His message and his ministry was one of scandalous grace 
toward those who, according to religious standards, least deserved it. He demonstrated God's welcome embrace to those who've been told again and again, because of your past, because of your mistakes, because of who you are, you don't belong. You're not someone God can love. In Luke 15, there's this incredible moment where Jesus, he's teaching kind of this mixed crowd of people. And in the crowd, you have tax collectors and sinners and people who had just been so beaten down by the religious system of the day. They just figured, why even try? Why try? Life is just eat, drink, be merry. When you die, you go to hell, but at least you'll like the people there. Also in the crowd, you had Pharisees who had such a dumbed-down view of God, they actually convinced themselves they had never sinned, that everyone was a sinner but them. In the middle of this crowd, Jesus stands up and he tells one of his most famous parables, the prodigal son. In the parable, the father represents God, and the son is someone who's done something so bad, there's no way a regular father would allow the relationship to be restored. Because many of us have heard this so much, we can't hardly even hear it anymore. I want to read a a paraphrase of the parable from theologian uh, Francis Spufford. He writes this. A father has two sons. One is a steady type, content to work away on the farm. But the younger one is all flash and leather trousers. And he persuades his dad to let him have his share of the inheritance up front. So he can have fun, fun, fun with it, which he does, away in the big city, draining the bucket of fun deeper and deeper, sleazier and sleazier, down into the sump of fun where the fun is really not that much fun anymore, but still kind of compelling, so you keep on doing it despite many resolutions to stop. Because if you do stop, you'll let let yourself see what you're losing right down to the last few extraordinarily disgusting mouthfuls, during which the younger son does things he can't even bear to name. Until finally the bucket is empty, and there's nothing left but the bitter knowledge of waste. And the younger son is alone and penniless and ruined in the gutter of the big city. And he wants to creep back home because that's all that's left. But he doesn't know whether home is even there for him now. Doesn't really see why it should be. After all, it was home he traded in for the fun, fun, fun. It was his take in home he was burning up. It was home he was choosing against all that time. So as he makes the long walk in the ridiculous rags of his party wear, clothes not made for dusty noon on the road, with his blisters oozing and the sour stink of old vomit lingering, he rehearses the speech he's going to make when he gets there. Dad, I know I've already had all I deserve from you and then some but I don't deserve to be your son. Can I just come back and, and, as a farmhand and, and sleep in the barn? But when he's stumbling down the last hill, before he's even reached the farm gate, he sees a figure on the road running to meet him. It's his father, like, weeping and laughing and waving his arms in the air. Dad, he says, I... But his father ignores the speech. He just kisses him and hugs him as if he's never going to let go again. This is my son, he shouts. This is my son who was lost and is found. Heat the bathwater, start cooking a feast, invite all the neighbors over. That's not the end of the story, though. 
it doesn't stop on this moment of pure rejoicing because the older brother is there too. He comes in from another day of sober, sensible work to ask what all the commotion is. And when he finds out, he's cautious and more than a little bit angry. The older brother's sour face says, all very touching, but there's only my half of the farm left. And how do you know, Dad, as you wipe the tears out of your beard, that Mr. Party Animal here has actually changed? How do you know that tomorrow he won't steal the silver spoons and the digital camera and be off again to the fun bucket? Also, when did I ever get a feast for staying put and doing what I was supposed to all along? Not fair. Jesus tells the story with the bad boy's viewpoint first and then the brother's so that those who hear it must become both of them so that we can recognize ourselves in each one. In every life, we have times we play both parts. We could simply join the older brother in asking for fairness, nothing but fairness, if we didn't see ourselves at all in the lost boy. Since we find ourselves in him as well, we too will need at times something far less cautious than justice. We too will need sometimes to be met on the road by a love that never shudders at the state we're in, never hesitates to check what it can bear, but only cries, this is my son, my daughter, who was lost and is found. Since the beginning, we've wanted to connect with the divine. We've wanted to reach out to God. And in the back of our minds, we have these fears. We have these questions like, what is God really like? What must he think of me? Is he angry? Is he disappointed? Am I doing enough? And sometimes the challenge is we come to Jesus and we go, Jesus is great. Jesus went around demonstrating grace and dismantling religion and tearing down all these religious boundaries. And, and Jesus loves me, this I know. So I'm cool with Jesus. It's the big guy he's working for that I might have a problem with. What does God think of me? Because what I've picked up on from some religious people is it sounds like there's a good chance I've done some things to keep me on like the naughty list forever. And we live with this uncertainty. We have, we're unsettled, driven by anxiety. The writer of Hebrews actually answers this question very clearly. Hebrews 1.3. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, which means Jesus is not just a little bit like God. He's not a semblance of what God is like. Jesus isn't Saturday God when God's in a good mood. According to this, he is the exact representation of God, which means Jesus is God himself at a party, taking a symbol of religious separation of you're not good enough and turning it into an invitation to everyone to celebrate. Jesus is God's way of saying, good news, God has never been interested in people just checking off religious boxes. It was never about religion. It was always about relationship, about a God who in his grace extends his love and acceptance and embrace to anyone who wants it. Doesn't that make you love Jesus? 
That's why our mission is and will be to invite people to find hope in Jesus because it turns out he's actually like really, really good news. I want to try to make this as clear as I can. I shared this story a few years ago about Eugene Peterson who passed away in 2018. And he, he wrote the message translation of the Bible and a bunch of other books and he, he influenced like millions of people in his life. And Eugene Peterson's son, Leif, then 50, uh, said at the funeral that his dad really only had one sermon, that he had everyone fooled for 29 years of pastoral ministry, that for all the books that he wrote, he basically had one message. It was a secret that Leif said his dad had let him in on early in life. Eugene had often snuck into Leif's room to say these words over him as he slept as a child. It was a message that Leif said his dad had whispered in his heart for 50 years. Here it is, his one sermon, his one message all those years. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. Jesus is God at a wedding party taking the ritual hand-washing jars used to separate people from God and filling them instead with good wine to symbolize God's permanent posture of relational invitation. Jesus is God, touching lepers and hanging out with outcasts and sinners and all these people who wondered what God thought of them but usually tried their best not to think about it, who were weighed down by guilt and shame and convinced they were unlovable. Jesus is saying again and again with his words and his actions, I am trying to make unmistakably clear the fact that God loves you. God is on your side. He's coming after you. He is relentless. And so to the person here who's been a Christian for years, sometimes we forget, don't we? We're trying to figure out how to come to God and leverage relationship based on what I've done or not done. Sometimes we need to be reminded of this. And how would your life change if you took that in and really believed it? To the person here who has spent a chunk of your life running from God who you figured probably can't wait to get his hands on you and make you pay. Areas where it's like, you don't know my past. You don't know the mistakes I've made, the baggage, the shame, the regret, the guilt. What do I have to do to have peace with God, my creator? And listen, you can keep running. You can keep living life in the far country if you want. But just know know that no matter where you go, you're going to discover what the psalmist, doing the same thing, eventually discovered. Even there, God is right with you. To the person here who's not sure what you think about the Bible or church and you have your doubts and you have your questions, first of all, we're glad you're here. I don't want to take anything away from that. It's so important to ask your honest questions. So I'm not trying to force anything on you, but let me tell you what is true even in your searching in this moment. God loves you. He's actually on your side. He's coming after you. And he is relentless. My heart for Common Way has always been that this be a place of scandalous grace. That it's who we are. 
And by the way, I would point out, it's not just for people like out there. Way more personal than that for me. It's actually partly because I've needed that myself. I've experienced the radical grace of God again and again from you. We've walked through plenty of hard things together over the years. You have made the boundless love of God real to me, tangible. You've marked my life forever. So thank you. We're going to listen to a song in a moment as we reflect. Cliff, you can come on up. We all have our stories, don't we? Mistakes we've made, regrets. <laughs> Failures, shortcomings, things we beat ourselves up over, parts of our past we're ashamed of, secrets we hope no one ever finds out. If that's you, you are a candidate to receive an incredible gift from God. And all you have to do is receive it. In the words of theologian Paul Tillich, grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when year after year, the longed for perfection does not appear. When the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades. When despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is as though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you, and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. For many of us, it's this tangible experience of the undiluted, undeserved grace of God that has changed our lives. It completely changes how we see ourselves, totally changes how we approach God, and certainly affects how we make room for others to experience the same thing when they're ready. And so this song, uh, though not really a church song, although actually is it, hmm, in many ways is a reinterpretation of this parable. It's about a person like the prodigal son who got so twisted up in the game, he could hardly remember his name, who he even was anymore. And so his story mirrors the prodigal who comes back home with his list of regrets in hand and his confession ready. And the father doesn't even let him finish his apology. Instead, he reminds the son who he is. May we all experience and encounter the only thing, the only thing that can truly change us, the reckless love and grace and embrace of God. May you come to see that God loves you exactly as you are. That he couldn't possibly love you any more than he does right now. Not if you improve. Not if you get better. Not when you stop or start. Fill in the blank. May you accept the fact that you are accepted by him. And may that knowledge and experience of grace 
change everything for you. Go in peace. We'll see you next time.